Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 723 of the podcast and it is Wednesday the 1st of November 2023 as I record this early before I head to 20 Books Vegas. So in today's show I'm talking about the mindset and business of selling books direct with Russell Nolte and we talk about the mindset shift required if you want to sell direct, tips for Kickstarter campaigns, marketing books direct and the long-term flywheel approach to an author business and more. Russell and Monica Lionel have their Direct Sales Mastery Kickstarter live as this goes out. WriterMBA.com forward slash DSA. Links in the show notes. And yeah, this is definitely an on-trend podcast since direct sales is a big topic in the author community right now. So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing things, I thought I'd share a few articles from some people this week. I guess these are more evergreen tips. Lesbian romance author Claire Lydon has posted her top 10 tips for indie authors after nine years of experience and a lot of success. They include, you don't have to write every day, but you do have to write. Don't get caught up in running your business. Remember why you started in the first place. Don't forget to keep writing because that's where the joy lives. Also the pain, (laughs) but it's a live, juicy, delicious pain and you'll always be glad you did. I really like that tip and certainly as I record this, I'm in fulfillment mode for my Kickstarter and it's the running the business aspect of this that I still love the running the business part, but I am I am really itching to get back to creating again. Um, and that is the creative cycle that I always talk about. One more tip from Claire and she has lots, but I'm, I'm just going to give you two. She also says, make sure you set up a proper business bank account and keep your receipts. You're running a business now. It ain't no hobby. (laughs) Uh, She also says, uh, listen to podcasts. Yes, obviously you're listening to this one. Don't be afraid to try new things. Change is constant. So being able to learn and adapt is crucial in publishing just as it is in life. So that's it. ClaireLyden.co.uk and I'll link to that in the show notes. And also, Steph Pajonas posted her 10 years lessons learned article. So that's nine and 10 years uh, from these two authors. And I think it's really interesting to read these. I mean, obviously, I post mine every year and uh, really interesting. Steph is brutally honest about her career. And of course, Steph was on here recently. We were talking about AI. So she's brutally honest. She says, I've had a lot of bumps in the road. I've never made a profit, never made more than $1,000 in book sales in a month. There are plenty of professional organisations I can't join because my income is so low. I've considered quitting several times. I've had bad reviews, people attack me and my books. I've made enemies of former friends because of my involvement with AI. I've fallen behind schedule, been stuck, put down and insulted. Hardcore stuff. <laughs> and then she says, despite everything, the thing I love most about my 10 years published is that I have learned a lot about both business and life. I didn't realise I really enjoyed the intersection of marketing and technology until I did this job. I didn't realise that my capacity for learning would lead me to some of the greatest opportunities I could ever ask for. I couldn't know where my path would lead if I hadn't stuck with this crazy idea that I could write books in a new and volatile market. I have learned so much and I'm so grateful to have had the chance to gain all this knowledge. And I think that's awesome. And I actually, in um, writing The Shadow, it's about turning your shadow into gold. And I have uh, one of the chapters is kind of what is your gold? Because gold in our author careers. It can be creative gold, it can be lifestyle, it can be money. But for many of us, 
the money is not the biggest part of why we do this. I mean, if you just want to make money, go do something else, <laughs> which in fact, Russell says, <laughs> Russell says later too. I mean, we do this because we love words and ideas and, and we love learning and we love creating and we love beautiful books. And I mean, we love everything about the creative aspect of being an author. And I think the the financial rewards can be great, but as Steph put here, very honestly, uh, not necessarily for everyone. So I love both of these articles, links in the show notes, and I post my lessons learned every year in September. So I recently posted my 12 year full time, um, as well as my goals on the 1st of January and then reviews of my goals at the end of the year. And I collect all of these um, on thecreativepen.com forward slash timeline links in the notes again, but that timeline has everything way back to 2008 when I started. Also, I wanted to share in the kind of writing and AI stuff, my wonderful editor, Kristen at The Blue Garret, published an article on using AI for fact-checking quotes. And she recently did this for me for writing The Shadow as part of the editing process. And uh, that's at her site, thebluegarret.com. She says, the debate over AI tools is still raging in the writing community, but I think there are some uses for these tools that sidestep the ethical debates and just help all of us, authors and editors, produce better work. Fact-checking quotations is one of these. So Kristen goes through the process from using Google Books to ChatGPT and Bing. And of course, if you're not up to date with AI tools, remember that Bing Chat and Google Bard are both connected to the internet, so are up to date and cite sources. And ChatGPT Pro has a browser mode and the latest updates include that as default. So while a few months ago it would have been true that these things were not connected to the internet, now they pretty much are. So things are quite different. So links in the notes to all of those articles. In personal news, uh, I haven't left yet as I record this, but as this goes out, I will just be back from 20 Books Vegas, the biggest author conference in the world, I think, Uh, certainly the biggest indie author conference. And so I wanted to schedule this episode early as it's likely I will be in full conference exhaustion mode on my return. This will be the day after I get back, basically. And this time I am really trying to be better about self-care. I've since when once this goes out, there'll be an article on the blog about self-care for introverts. And this introvert will be completely empty in terms of energy and completely full in terms of ideas and meetings and thoughts and general peopling. (laughs) So I need some time off. I have cleared my schedule for a few days after I get back. Uh, Five days, I think, or maybe four days. (laughs) As in, I haven't booked any meetings, so my plan is to rest and recharge. Although, of course, I'm just assuming that it will only take a few days because at the end of this week, as this goes out, I'm going to Peterborough to the Book Vault printing plant to sign over 420 gold foil edition hardbacks for writing The Shadow. Thank you so much to everyone who joined the campaign. And if you uh, got the digital ebook, audiobook, PDF, workbook, um, that should all be with you. And any digital rewards should be with you. And all the print books, the unsigned ones should be on their way. And the gold foil hardbacks I'll be signing this week. I will post pictures on Instagram and Facebook at JF Pen Author and probably also the Creative Pen on Facebook if you want to see a massive, massive pile of books. So this is double the size of pilgrimage. So if you saw the pictures of me signing for pilgrimage, this is double. (laughs) So I am very excited. I love the quality of the book vault um, app books. And I've got uh, a few of the gold ones here with me. And for personal things like my my mum and my dad and my husband, (laughs) you haven't read it yet. Uh, And in fact, if you get the ebook, you will probably read it before my loved ones um, who are all in it. But there's nothing, uh, there's nothing that hopefully they'll be mad at me about. Um, yeah, I'm also incredibly grateful to Book Vault for being awesome about doing the packaging and the shipping. So when you're, if you're doing a Kickstarter, I mean, the packaging and the shipping is part of the fulfillment process. And I guess one of my biggest tips is be very organized and have as much done prior to the campaign as possible and get help if you're doing a lot of physical rewards and you have to pack and ship and all of that. 
But yes, I don't have to go to the post office and I don't have to package those up. They will all, that will all be done at the printing plant. I'm just going up there. So very excited about that. So there are no emails or comments as I am pre-recording, but remember, you can leave a comment on the podcast show notes at thecreativepen.com or on the YouTube channel, uh, The Creative Pen. You can also email me, send me pictures of where you're listening, joanna at thecreativepen.com. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So this episode is sponsored by draft digital and I'll play a word from them in a minute. So even though I am sort of almost now I'm direct first in terms of my publishing business, I am absolutely wide with my books. And that includes using draft digital for my ebook publishing to library platforms, to Nook and to others as well in that. And also their excellent payment splitting for co-writing. So yes, I, I don't just do direct as Russell talks about. I um, everywhere. <laughs> so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my community at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. So as a patron, you get access to the monthly Q&A and the backlist as well. And that's an audio. So that comes through your podcast feed, as well as videos behind the scenes of my author business. We're doing AI tool demos, Shopify, much more to come. I'm turning my Patreon hub into a really useful resource for authors. Uh, The Patreon is now a monthly subscription, but basically the equivalent of a black coffee a month. So if you would like to buy me a black coffee a month (laughs) or a couple of coffees or even a flat white, since the price of those has really gone through the roof, uh, if you're feeling generous. Uh, Thanks to all patrons who've been supporting the show for months and years. You are fantastic. Also, thanks to new patrons. You're amazing. And I will be um, reading out names next week. And hopefully more of you will join me in the community, patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from Draft to Digital, and then we'll get on with the interview. Hi, this is Kevin Tomlinson with draft to digital bringing you DDD smart author tip number 13. You, everywhere. That's one of our goals here at DDD. We're aiming to build tools that help you and your books be everywhere that your readers might be looking. And to do that, we've built a whole bunch of tools that you can use for free. Author pages, book tabs, reading lists, Universal book links, those are just some of the ways we've got you covered in the world. And of course, we also distribute your books to hundreds of retailers, subscription services, and libraries all over the world. Helping you reach more readers is what we're here for. And we keep improving on that every day. draft to digital we are self-publishing with support. Find more at d2d.tips slash pen. That's pen with two N's, because we're big on the numeral two around here. Russell Nolte is the USA Today best-selling author of fiction, graphic novels and comics, non-fiction and books for authors, including This Is Not A Book, Thoughts on Living A Writerly Life. His latest book is Get Your Book Selling Direct to Readers, Build Profitable Direct Sales Funnels and Sell More Books Outside of Retailers, co-written with Monica Lionel, launching as this goes out on Kickstarter. So welcome to the show, Russell. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a a career-long dream to be on this show because I've been listening to it for so long, so I'm very excited. I'm super excited to talk to you and and you're kind of one of my gurus at the moment. You and Monica are doing such a great job of educating people on this. But first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. Sure. So I started my first creative business in 2004. I went out on my own as a freelance camera operator after graduating from college And that didn't really work very well. It turns out there's a lot of technical stuff you have to know about cameras and editing and all sorts of things. I was very good at visually seeing an image, but like doing all of the actual recording of video and such, it wasn't really what I truly loved. And then I moved to doing directing. And then I realized no one hired directors. They all wanted to direct their own stuff that they wrote. So I was like, well, I've read a bunch of the scripts that I've been on camera with, and they're all not very good. So (laughs) I could probably do at least this good. And that's kind of been the thing of my entire career. It was not saying I could do this really well. It's like, well, 
I, I can do at least this well. I had a bunch of publishing contracts and they all went very badly. And I found out that they were just putting my books on Ingram Spark and stuff. And I was like, I could do that. I don't know if I can release this book any better than these publishers, but I know for sure I can release them just as bad. And so that's how it sort of was a career of going from photography to directing to writing movies and tv and then i got into comics when the movies and tv thing didn't really work out and then comics are really expensive and they take forever so i started writing books in the interim between comic projects and then i fell in love with books and then books turned into conventions and conventions turned into me writing nonfiction books and nonfiction books led to courses and it just kind of was an organic snowball effect that I come back and I say, wow, I don't think I would ever tell any other human to do it that way for sure. <laughs> I love that, though. I mean, I did do a plan back in the day, but a lot of this career is just taking the next opportunity and sort of deciding to take the next step. So it's interesting. You mentioned you started off in visual creativity with camera operator and script writing and that kind of visual sense. Is that why you favoured the graphic novels and why you still do a lot of very very visual projects do you think you're much more of a visual person than a lot of the text-based writers I think that it just makes sense to me how visuals work and I think even so yes like my manager at the time told me I should do comics and I was unconvinced until he handed me a whole stack of like new indie comics that were coming out at the time and I fell in love with them and like it just immediately made sense and when I started writing books I actually took movie and tv scripts that i had and i started to write them and flush them out i'm not a planner but i do write a beat outline of it and at least try and hit the big beats the action plot beats that move this pl the plot along so all of my books are about kind of moving around these set pieces everything kind of leads to that and that's how my brain worked in movies and TV. And it's still, even now, 40 books in. Even when I write nonfiction, I'm like, what is the set piece moment that we're building all of this climax to? So let's get into the direct sales piece, because it really does seem like there's been an explosion of interest in direct sales, really in the last year, 18 months. So I wondered, like, take us back. When did you do your first Kickstarter? And why do you think it's taken so long before this is starting to go mainstream now? Sure. So I did my first, it wasn't even a Kickstarter, it was an Indiegogo campaign in 2011. And then I did another one, I think, in 2012. I did my first Kickstarter in 2014, which is when I really started taking it very seriously after I took all of the rights back from my publishers. And I started doing them because it's weird working in so many different publishing areas because I feel like they've all got about 10 to 15% of the answer and they don't talk to each other. And so nobody ever learns like what the other pieces are and you find a lot of the most successful authors also are doing a lot of different formats and they're learning from all of these different formats and the thing that when you do comics there is no aftermarket for comics after kickstarter like there are no retailers aside mm -hmm. from bookstores if you can somehow get them into comic book stores and even then that's not very profitable like there's no way to make comics on to make money from comics online really that is not either a subscription that you would find on like Patreon or even Webtoon or doing Kickstarters and, or doing conventions. It's the only way to make money in comics really is at conventions. So they, tell, they teach you very early. The stack that you learn for comics is you run a Kickstarter, you do the convention circuit. And then when Patreon came, it's like maybe you do a Patreon or there's used to be a thing called Drip, which Kickstarter had or one of the other ones that you have a subscription. And like those were the ways you made money listening to the other side of it where the pros people are so retailer focused is wild to me i still don't have any of my fiction books on retailers like zero of them are on retailers right now and i've written over 40 and i think one of the big mindset shifts you have to make when you're doing direct sales is catalog sales are very different than direct to customer sales 
And when I say catalog sales, Amazon is a catalog. Sears is a catalog. So if you remember actually getting, like I'm old enough to get to actually remember getting the Sears catalog and like JCPenney, Macy's catalogs. And when you're flipping through, the goal of the, the catalog is to be just like the other things. It's like to be the blue shirt that they want. And like, they're not really looking, like they've already curated that Macy's can curate for them. And so whatever Macy's wants like says that they should buy, that's what they're looking at. And that's how Amazon sales works. That's one of the reasons why people say every paranormal romance should look the same. Every Everything with the same subgenre should look the same. It's because when people are looking through the catalog of Amazon books, um, they are picking the one that looks most like the one that they have already read. When you're talking about direct sales, it's the opposite. It's really people who are trying to find a unique and different experience. And I think the change is, and I've been talking about uh, direct sales in the pro side since 2016, at least when I ran my first three uh, pros campaigns. And everyone would say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go into KU because it works. Mm -hmm. And the thing that happened in the past five years is it doesn't work anymore. And so people are trying to find more ways to make that the catalog algorithm work, even as it works less and less for less and less percentage total of people. I love that you said that the catalogue idea is to be just like the other things, just a different shade of blue or whatever. And I feel I feel such a relief at this Kickstarter model and really but it takes a while for the penny to drop. It's almost like when you first look at it, like I didn't want to do it for ages. I I just I guess I didn't know. And it it does feel a bit complicated and people have said to me, Oh, it's too high risk and I could just put my book up on Amazon. But what you've said is exactly right is that things are not working anymore for well they're working still for some people (laughs) but they're certainly changing for other people so are there any other sort of mindset shifts people have to think about in terms of selling direction you said you haven't got any books on retailers I do have all my books still well not every edition but I put them on Amazon later I do direct first and then I put them on all the stores but what are your other thoughts on any mindset shift or attitude shifts so yes the biggest thing I think is to kind of uh, this is a very flippant brief history of the publishing industry which can, can easily be torn apart over some scrutiny but like in general prior to World War One, there was no chance unless you were in the aristocracy of getting a book published it just pretty much didn't happen after World War One and definitely after World War Two, it started to get more and more able for anyone to publish books as long as you lived in certain centers, New York, Los Angeles, Paris, London, there were a couple others, but like those were the big ones. And then with the invention of Kindle, it started to become more people from wherever could publish a book. And then with the invention of KU, it was anyone can publish a book as long as and be successful as long as it fits into the KU model. And now with direct sales, the beauty is you could sell anything and find an audience really but the problem is you can sell anything and find an audience and like where do you put your effort and how do you know which of these things to focus on and so one of the biggest mindset shifts for people who've been unsuccessful in retailers a lot of them will say well why should i try a new thing it's just another chance for me to put a ton of effort in and fail again and yes All business is about failure. I mean, we could probably have an entire two-hour conversation about the failures in our careers, even though we're (laughs) both very successful authors. Mm. But it's a chance to find different ways to succeed. And what I think the biggest mindset shift that a person can make is to say, there are a million ways to succeed. And all I have to do is find one of them. Like one of them, one path to success and and I can double down on that and then I can expand out from there and it can be the seed of building my publishing empire as opposed to while KU is very different than wide, they are both catalog sales. There's a lot of authors who don't have success on either and they're like, oh, well, this is just another 
thing I'm going to put a bunch of time, energy, and money into and then not have success. And while that is true, you could not have success because there are so many different models from web stores and landing pages, from conventions and Kickstarter and subscriptions. There's at least five different models for success. And then there are different branches out underneath all of them. And all of them are a chance to latch on to something and find a success. And if you find one, you can probably use that to find another one and then find another one. And then for successful authors, what I say is Amazon will stop working for you eventually over time, you can look at people who were super successful 10 years ago, and almost none of them are the same super successful authors now. And so you need to hedge from Amazon stopping looking at you like a darling and start taking your career into your own hands so that if slash when the uh, Amazon uh, or catalog sales drop, you have that an email list. Like the people who still are able to have that success year over year are people that have curated that email list from the beginning and have a strong direct-to-customer relationship. And finally, the last shift that I would say is this, most people say that means I have to do X. And I would say the reframe is I get to do X. X. Like I get to get books into my house and sign them. And like people pay me to do that. Like 12 year old me would freak out if they knew I'd just spend like two days signing comics and shipping comics to people who paid me to do that. And you don't have to do all of those things. Like you can set up direct fulfillment to from a warehouse or you can use uh, Lulu to, to direct ship from your warehouse. But what you get to do is have a relationship with the customers that are more than just that bar graph going up and down and being very impersonal because, I mean, f- let's be fair. Like if we were doing the thing to just see the bar graph and line go up, like we would all sell different widgets because it's a very hard widget to sell over time books and mm. not great margin. And so like we would go sell something that has like a higher profit margin. Like we're probably doing this to make a connection with readers and that direct relationship, direct to customer relationship allows us to not only own that direct relationship and curate it, but be energized from it as well. Yeah, I I love that reframe. And I've definitely had to go through this kind of journey because I feel like a few years back, uh, I did want the digital only. I mean, for a while, I didn't do print at all back in the day because when I initially did print back in 2006, I had them all in my garage and I didn't know how to sell. But then over time, it was like, right, digital only, scale, global. And I didn't want to do the personal stuff. I didn't want to sign books. I didn't want to do that kind of thing. Uh, we were talking before recording, like, find video difficult. And I didn't necessarily want to be emailing with loads of people. And so, I I think one of my resistance to this was the sort of, oh, I'm actually going to have to do a sort of more higher touch thing. But as you say, the reframe is, oh my goodness, this is amazing because I actually do get to connect with people. And just yesterday I sent a signed book, signed my uh, book Pilgrimage, which I did my last Kickstarter on. And uh, this guy was like, I bought it for myself. Can you sign it to me? Because I'm going to do the Camino in a wheelchair. And I was just so touched by emailing him back. And I just felt, oh my goodness, I am having connection with this person that if they just bought a book on Amazon I would not have had and so now it's almost like I I feel like you're saying which is this totally different view of my business which is the sort of direct first means a much more personal way it really is like we're in that thousand true fans moment that we first talked about 20 years ago it's kind of crazy yeah absolutely I love Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans, but it does have a reframe in and of itself, which is a lot of people think they're going to talk to a thousand people and those thousand people are going to suddenly become your biggest fans. But it really is the same kind of funnel as anything else. In order to find those thousand true fans, you need to talk to probably millions of people and reach millions of people at least to be able – through Facebook ads or through through podcasting or through – 
shares or through book funnel or like whatever the way is like you have to find a lot of those people and a lot of it is funneling people from your casual readers into your direct sales relationship and not everyone is going to make that journey and so one one other reframe that i would say is those people at the bottom like those people are the gold of like your whole business because they're the ones that have come with you on that journey. And if you can have that reframe where these people probably found me on retailers or listened to one episode of a podcast and then fell into my funnel somehow, and they somehow made it down to reading all of my books for like getting this very odd book. Like you mentioned, um, this is not a book. And I was like, that's a book that's never going to be on retailers. You can only get it on my Substack or through my website in a bundle because I think that it's this very weird book that you have to know. Like, I don't want that to be the first touch point that people had of me because people will say, what is this? This is just a bunch of thoughts. I don't get it. But once you've gone through the experience, you can then get that book and I think have a transformational moment. And I had a really nice moment after that after the Kickstarter, where someone in Australia was, I can't believe I had to pay for shipping of this book, or they they said something. And then they read the book, and they're like, I just wanted to apologize. I read this book, and it's transformed my life. It's so amazing. And I feel like we can also have these things where books that did not do well on retailers, or just you know will not do well on retailers, but you know that people in your true fandom will love like you can still make a make money or make it worthwhile at least to make it financially to take time out to make these experiences because suddenly like the your biggest fans are there to have those experiences and they want that more transformational experience that comes with direct sales than they prop than than someone who's just coming in for a book on retailers and learning about you for the first time so it's a wonderful opportunity in that as well And I guess one of the other things that has frustrated me is the very narrow number of options. And I mean, it's funny that I say that because when I originally started self-publishing, we didn't really have any print on demand um, physical books. And then we didn't even have ebooks at at the time. And and then over, we've got more and more like digital audio appeared. So we do have a lot of choices. But with physical products, it seems like the what we can do with direct sales, either with Kickstarter, obviously you can do anything, but also now with Shopify, with PayHip, with all of these other direct stores, we can do other things from live events to subscriptions and so your Substack and all of this kind of thing. So I wanted to ask you particularly about the high quality physical products You've done lots of comics and graphic novels. You've collaborated with artists. And I want to create beautiful books and products, but mainly books. And I know many listeners do too. So, but this is risky. This is risky. And I also kind of know from trying to do a Kickstarter that you need pictures and you need, you almost need to know what you're doing and and do the art beforehand. So, yeah, I just wondered if you could give us some tips for going beyond sort of print on demand. And and what do we need to keep in mind around these higher quality and higher cost uh, products? Sure. So first, I will say that somehow all of the teaching that we have given over the last two years has been executed in this way that makes it seem like you have to do this enormous campaign with like sprayed edges and like big beautiful hardcovers and interior illustrations and vellum and all of that stuff and i want to say first that is absolutely not true <laughs> like you don't have to do any of those things if you look at the lo- two of the last three campaigns all i was offering was paperback books and ebooks and then audio commentary for one of the campaigns and so you can do a kickstarter and i often will tell people especially if they're not a already successful author like do a campaign that is small and easy to get data on before you do something big so my first piece of advice is until you've actually done a kickstarter and you know well i'll just take brandon sanderson did his first campaign for way of the kings and mm. made seven million dollars and that is what i think like a perfect first campaign is i mean yes it would make seven million dollars too that would be amazing but um He took a book that was already successful. He used an anniversary. I think it was a 10-year anniversary to do an exclusive hardcover book that of a book he already knew was successful and had an audience. So before – if I were to give 
someone who had a bunch of books already a piece of advice, I would say go find a book that you already know is successful and already know has run up a quite a big profit margin. So for our My God's First Chronicles books, before I even brought them the novels to Kickstarter, I had made close to $100,000 on those books, of which like 60000 was profit. So I was willing to do a lot for those books because they had already performed quite well for me as a series. And so if you have something like that, like you literally know it's already going to be successful because like you have fans and you already, it's not even about how much money you make. It's about rewarding the fans with something that's like really beautiful. And yes, you would like to make $10,000 on that book, 20,000. You'd like to make $7 million on that book, but it's already earned out and it's already shown that like it has a big fandom that will support it. And so that is one thing that I would say. Another option would be to take a book that people love when they read it, but maybe not enough people have read. We call this a second chance book and bring it out again and show some love to it. Again, you're seeing that you're using the fan sentiment that already exists to dictate spending more time, energy, and effort on it. I would say if you're going to bring something new into the world, you probably want to be on the low end of what your exposure is because you are trying to judge how Kickstarter is going to go for you. So if at all possible, you should come in with something you either already know is successful or with something that if you make some money on it, would be great, but you don't have to make money on it because you're already going to launch it in retailers. That's why we often say a $500 um, reward goal is good because if you make 500 additional dollars on a book you're already going to release without putting a whole bunch of effort into it, then you already it's already a win for you. As far as print options... The one that everyone uses now is sprayed edges, which I think is great. I think that now, though, everyone uses sprayed edges, and so it loses a little bit of its luster when literally every campaign has sprayed edges now. I would say that the real – you start getting real value when you're able to move overseas or to somehow do – a thousand or two thousand or even five hundred unit run of books because the cost per book is much cheaper and you can do a lot of cool things with the books. So there are two ones that I grew up embedded in my brain. They might be called something different now, but they were called gang printing and gang binding. So gang printing is if you can send more than one print a book to print at the same time you save a huge amount of money on both of those books. So I had a series, I had a book that I quoted and I was going to get 2000 books of one book. And then I decided to print a second book on top of that. And the price was only a couple thousand dollars more to get 2000 books of both of those series. So you're saving a massive amount of, it was 6,000 to get the first one and there's 8,000 to print both. So you can save a massive amount by putting two books or putting four, let's say you have four books you want to release on Kickstarter this year to put them all out, at, order them all at one time. Second is gang binding. So the thing that is really exciting about doing an offset print run is the ability to, we call it a change fee, which is you can use the same interior, but let's say you want to do 50 in leather, 100 in in hardcover, 100 in an exclusive store variant cover, 200 in paperback, and 200 in I don't know, some other format. You can do all of those, and now you're not printing 500 books of one cover. You're printing all of these. You're printing a store exclusive, maybe. Or a lot of people are doing retailer exclusive covers. You're doing books that are for your store, for your conventions, and you're printing all of these things at the same time. So it might cost you $4,000 or something to get 1,000 books, but you're printing them all simultaneously and instead of it costing you eight ten dollars to print hardcover or leather it's costing you four dollars and a lot of what a lot of publishing is about making that differential between uh, profit and loss as big as you possibly can because then you're going to have to give more on retailers and then you have things like 
pins and vellum book inserts and prints. One of the great things about prints is you can, if you have an interior illustration, you can also sell that as a print. You can also put it in a potential art book in the future, so you can defray your costs multiple ways by uh, making that one illustration. And a lot of direct sales is, how can I make something one time and sell it in 20 different ways? Yeah, I think there's a lot more creativity involved in thinking about what you can do using characters on stickers and doing oh there's just so many things I've been trying to collect people's various ideas on the campaigns I've been backing and for fiction and non-fiction I mean I, I feel like in a way non-fiction can be uh, well it can still be very creative you can still do loads of things but you see so many very cool things in the fiction niche so I want to encourage people to think uh, that you can just be more creative and it might sound a bit daunting <laughs> and it is daunting you have to learn a new language you have to learn a new way of doing things but I also feel like that's the exciting thing and as I've been saying and, and I'm very pro AI but the rise of AI creation means that the digital only market will be getting far more saturated but doing this kind of special physical product that will not get so saturated because of all the work <laughs> it takes right. to do well, this you know Yes, there's going to be a number of people who want the direct human contact. And like, I'm not quite as pro AI as you. I'm probably somewhere in the neutral level. Like, I think it's going to be great. I use it sometimes. I don't use it all of the time. I prefer all things being equal to like see non-AI stuff and to talk to an actual human to get answers. But I don't have a negative feeling about it. I feel the same way about it that I feel about Grammarly. It's cool. I get a lot of value out of Grammarly, but I'm also not going to go to a Grammarly conference. Mm. Um, <laughs> but it is it, the value that you have as an author. It has always been whether it was again, whether you were competing against Stephen King, and I don't like the word competing, but I'm going to use it here. Whether it was Stephen King or AI, like the advantage is you. If you were if you were talking about Stephen King, like Stephen King is not going to conferences. He's not responding to every message. He's not having back and forth email exchanges with all of his fans. Maybe he is. I don't know. He writes so much, but maybe he's able to do all of these things. But he's not able to have that personal high touch. And to me, that's always been the indie advantage is that we are able to go to conventions. We are able to speak on a lot of podcasts. We are able to have podcasts. We are able to have these communities, which are considerably smaller than the reach that Stephen King gets, but also a lot higher touch. And the more authors can find ways to do that without energetically draining themselves, I think the better setup they are going to be in the future. Uh, because I mean, I, I know we're, we have a similar opinion on the doomsayers of AI. I just, someone told me once, they're like, Amazon already filters out billions of garbage books every year. Do you think 20 billion is for, with AI is going to be significantly less than the harder than the billion they already filter out? And like, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. But I think the opportunity here is that you are the human writing the books. If Whether you are using it as an augmented with AI, or you are doing it completely as yourself like and the conventions and all of these things and direct sales is going to become more important because it is you that is able to set yourself apart from every other writer and it has always been true the thing that separates Joan Didion from Stephen King is that they are Joan Didion and they are Stephen King that is the biggest selling point for an author mm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just a couple of questions around Kickstarter in particular. So you did mention if someone's got something new, they should maybe put a $500 uh, sort of idea in and they don't have to do all this stuff. They could just do, I guess, an ebook and a paperback like you mentioned. But if someone is brand new and, and they don't really have an audience, should or can they start with this kind of very wide direct sales approach? Or do you think people do need to build up an audience elsewhere before they go direct? Well, I think that direct sales is going to give you a higher percentage of income and greater control over what you put out and what you should put out. So the thing that is wild about catalog sales is 
people make decisions based – they will send a survey to their audience and they will make decisions on that survey without knowing whether those people buy their books or not. And I find that wild. Like I – when I started doing this, I was like – like people would tell me this and I was like, but – no wonder that book didn't do well because like you don't know if the people actually who bought the book wanted it or just random people like you don't know you can't make any decision i guess this is a very forced thing to say if you know our author ecosystem but like you want to make decisions either from what the market wants with no impact from like readers at all uh, from, from like your own audience at all or you want to at least make decisions that you know where you can target Okay, these three people bought my book, and this is what they say, and here is the consistency between them. If you're sending a survey or asking questions to a bunch of people, and out of 100 of them, only three bought your books, and the 20 people who answer your survey aren't one of those three people, like you're going to make some pretty bad decisions. Um, and so if you start from the beginning, you can probably... So one of the things people say is like doing book funnel promos for a lot of these freebie giveaways is like not a a, a good is, is not a good determinant for making their business scale. And the reason is because if you send 20 people to Amazon to make three dollars, like you made sixty dollars and that might not juice the algorithm to work for you, especially if you don't have ads going. But if you can take those same six 60 people and make $25 on them, then suddenly you've made $1,000 or however much that is, $1,200. And you're able to say, okay, these 50 people bought the book. And here is what the 50 people on my email list said. Even if it's only 10 people, even if you put out a book and one person buys it from your email list, it will always tell you something. All that catalog sales tell you at the end of the day is did I hit the tropes well enough and did I game the algorithm well enough to have Amazon show this to more and more and more and more and more and more and more people? And that is important uh, because you want to make money, but it is not necessarily a good way to run a business when you're first starting out, especially because you need a certain amount of data to come through before you can make decisions. Like if you're putting a book out and only five people buy it on retailers, even a hundred people buy it on retailers, that's really not enough information to make a decision. But if you run a thousand people through a direct sales sequence and only one person buys, well, that's a lot different. That's a lot better way to make decisions about your business and make corrections that will lead to better outcomes for you. So, if you're a newer author, I think you should. I think that for almost anyone, Kickstarter should be the first stage of your marketing journey because it will hopefully break you even and give you money you can then spill over into marketing. And I know from releasing books, both successfully and unsuccessfully, on retailers that. Putting money behind a book that has already broken even is a monumental shift from putting money behind a book that you have never sold one copy of. Yeah, so we're basically saying, yes, go ahead if you don't have much of an audience, but have a low goal and then use that data in the future. But you did mention marketing there. I talked to some authors who, and this always happens, right? People think, oh, if I put a book in KU, it will dramatically sell. Or if I put a book on Kickstarter, it will just magically sell. This hasn't changed. You still have to get people to the page, regardless of where it is. So when people, and people, I don't know why, but they seem very confused about how to market to a Kickstarter or a Shopify store or a Substack or whatever. So I guess let's keep it to Kickstarter specifically. How much is organic algorithm and how much has to be driven by other marketing means? Well, so I think that at the beginning, you have to bring the first 25 people to the party. If you bring 25 or 30, it's not an exact number of 25, but if you can bring a small amount of people to the party, Kickstarter will start showing your work to more people in their recommendation engine. And their recommendation engine is 
I'm not going to say like Amazon, but it has similar functionality in many ways. So at the bottom of every campaign that you scroll down, there are other campaigns that you should, they recommend other campaigns. When you are scrolling, it will show you more campaigns and the bigger campaigns tend to go up higher and the campaigns that get consistently backed over time get higher, which sounds a lot like what Amazon does as well. When you back a campaign, after you back a campaign, it will show you more options. When they send an email that you've backed, they will send you more options. About once a week, they send you more options. At least once a month, they send you options of what is going on. So the earlier you can get those backers, the better. But you can also do backer swaps and reach out to people and do group promos and all of these things. Kind of what's amazing is all of the things that used to work on on Facebook and Amazon that don't work anymore kind of like work on Kickstarter. So if you just look about 10 years ago about what was happening on Facebook as that was working and indie books with a lot of cross promo and such that was working a lot better and Facebook hops and things. They are working a lot on Kickstarter because you only need to get one or two to make 50 or a hundred or sometimes $500. So it's not like you're doing a, a, a cross promotion and then getting three people to read your uh, KU book. Someone is going to your campaign and making a decision that is going to bring 25, 50, maybe even more money to your campaign and get you better exposure. So it's really interesting. The same thing happens with Substack where like, I feel I feel personally as a person who has done a lot of these things and then watch them do worse and worse and worse as far as returns. I feel kind of like a superhero because I'm like, wow, I can just do all these things and suddenly they work again. Yeah, it is. It is very interesting um, in that way. I I must say with Kickstarter, I have tended to spend like a couple of hundred dollars on paid ads, but only to my audience. So just to people on my email list and that kind of thing. And I haven't really gone much further. I've mainly used my organic reach and things like podcasts. Like you say, it's kind of that cross promotional thing. Do you think paid ads are something that people should look at for Kickstarter? In general, no. So the answer that I would say is unless you have a minimum of 100 organic backers, which is like backers that you get probably in the first couple of days, Mm. and additionally, at least a $60 average pledge value, ads are probably not going to be profitable to you. That is not my number. That is number that other people have calculated. And it probably it's, it used to be $50 and fit like it used to be the mechanics have changed. But in general, you are not going to see a significant profitability unless you have those. And the most profitability you'll probably get is about two to two to one. It's usually like 1.6 ROI, like 60%. ROI, which isn't great if you're doing. And one of the way, reasons that ads are great is because they like help you seed a thing over time. And 30 days is just not like well, after 30 days, all of that work you did with, with your ads are going to pretty much go away until your next campaign. So I usually say I wouldn't recommend ads for unless you have those metrics. However, if you have a name already or if you know a lot of people that like your name is relevant to, then that becomes more and more, um, more and more possible. Like, should Melanie Harlow do Facebook ads if she's doing a Kickstarter? Yes, probably she should because a lot of people already know Melanie Harlow and they already will have that lower cost per acquisition. Um, but it, it, if if you are just Joe Schmo. It's probably not going to do you a ton of good to do ads because you're going to reach up against the, oh, wow, I don't know who this person is. And then also, wow, that's a lot of money to try this person for the first time. And I've not seen most people do not have success with ads on Kickstarter. Even most people who are successful don't have success doing that. I usually recommend doing more cross promos, email swaps and backer swaps, things like that, because you're going to get a bigger return, but it does take more energy energetically to do. Yeah. And I wanted to encourage people around that. I hear so many people say, oh, well, if I can't afford paid ads, then I can't do any marketing. And I'm like, look, you know, 
think most of us spend 90% of our marketing effort not on paid ads. There's a lot more you can do. So I think the overall idea is to get creative around your projects and also around your marketing. And like you said, it's almost like winding back the clock a decade where things were just more open. Like there are no rules really, I guess, on this stuff. So as we come to a close, one of the things I think is super important is this long-term view of an author business. And obviously, traditional publishing has this myth of you do a book, you hit the bestseller list, you make a million, you can retire. And that's just not the reality. That's not been your career. That's not my career. So how can you encourage authors, I guess, around that long-term perspective, especially when it comes to building direct sales, which take time? Sure. So the pessimistic side of this is that there's not much money we talked about this already in publishing compared to other entrepreneurial fields. So most people will burn out. And so staying in gives you a huge advantage by staying in and putting out good books year over year after over year because people – at the beginning, people are very wary that you will just not finish a series. But like Brandon Sanderson, for instance, has proven that he will finish multiple series. So people are more willing to give him a shot over anyone else in the fantasy space because they know his pedigree and they know that he's going to finish what he starts, assuming that he doesn't die. So it can be a huge advantage of you long-term thinking in that respect. The optimistic side is that the marketing that you do now, do you ever talk about flywheels on this podcast? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know you use that metaphor. So why didn't you explain that? Because I, I agree with it. Okay, so most businesses are creating pumps. Most people show you how to make a water pump. And a pump is something that when you exert force on it, the same amount of water comes out of that pump. If you, the first time and the millionth time. The, a flywheel is a concept that was invented by HubSpot, which involves attracting, uh, engaging, and delighting your audiences in a cyclical manner. So it's like a flywheel. A, how a water flywheel works is it takes a massive amount of force to get it running the first time. It might take two, three, four people to start a flywheel. But with every rotation, it gets easier and easier and easier and easier until you can spin it with just like a finger. And that is what we're trying to make here. And so everyone talks about how hard it is to get going. But... I don't know. I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I find the things that are easy to do are pumps. They're very easy for like a person to be like, I had great success with like these keywords or gaming the system this way or like finding arbitrage here. And then after three months, it's like, oh, well, uh, I got to go pump again because I got to find the next easy thing. Direct sales is a flywheel. It is creating a system where you bring people in, you introduce them through a funnel into your system, into your series, you treat them like more than a $20 bill, and like that that expands out over time. And so the fifth year you're doing this, you get more, you just get more from it. I think of Elena Johnson and her cowboy romance series has got 100 books in it. Over time, like that used to be one book. And it didn't own the category. And now it's 100 books deep or more than 100 books deep. Again, over time, just the fact that you exist and you've put out 100 books in a series, that just says a lot about you. When like you say, I've got 1,000 episodes of my podcast or I've been a six-figure author since 2017, people go, oh, well, like that tells me a lot. It says that you have consistently been able to put out quality. It says that you are able to deliver on things. And suddenly you're getting this, this, this arbitrage above other people just by the fact that you existed. But getting that initial flywheel set up is brutal. So f people say this about Kickstarter all of the time. They're like, this is so much marketing. And I tell them, well, yes, it is building a sales page, and then building an email sequence. But once you have that email sequence, assuming you're going to keep going in that series, you can use it for 10 years. 
Like you can, and when you're, when you build that sales page, the sales page I built on Kickstarter for the complete series is a lot, is almost exactly like the sales page that I've been using all year for my God's Verse Chronicle series. And so, and a lot of the marketing copy, like talking about the world and talking about what's different and talking about the characters, all of that stuff I added to the sales page just became part of the email sequence. And then that email sequence has been selling the books in the background Every time, so every time I do a book funnel promotion or I have this thing called Action Fantasy Book Club, every time I drop people into that sequence, it automatically does stuff in the background. So we often talk about how hard these things are to set up at the beginning, but not how much they pay off at the end. So yes, it is a lot harder than hitting the KU button and saying, yes, I want to be in KU. But what's interesting about Wide is once you've done all of the work to put a book on Amazon, like, you already have the EPUB file, you already have the cover, you already have the copy. Like, all you have to do is basically replicate it to the other retailers. Uh, I mean, not exactly replicate it. Aaron Wright would kill me if, if I said that, <laughs> and so would Monica. It's not an exact copy, but you've got most of the work done for you. So setting it up one time is very time-consuming. But setting it up in a way that expands you for the long term ends up being much easier over time. And now I have the Godsverse Chronicles, I have Ichabod, I have the Obsidian Spindle Saga, I have an email sequence that introduces people to each one of those. And while I go in and make tweaks over time, I don't really think about it. Like when I do a book funnel promo or when I get emails, they just go into my sequence and then stuff happens or it doesn't happen. And then I still continue on with my day and my life. I write my Substack stuff and people funnel in to all of these things. And they have all of these ways to funnel in to my ecosystem. And I think that to me, when people say, how can you do this for so long? I say, how can I stop? It's so easy now. I've made the, the flywheel so easy that how could I not keep doing it? Because writing in another series becomes hard because I'm like, oh my God, I have to start this from scratch again. Yeah, I mean, I've built my business on the flywheel concept uh, as well. I, I feel like doing the podcast, for example, doing content marketing, all these things snowball over time. I guess a snowball going down the hill is another metaphor. But um, one of the reasons I trust you and Monica is that you both have such longevity in the market. And I didn't really know you before this year, but I've been talking to Monica for, for a while. She's been on the show a number of times. And so it's great to talk to you. But you both have a ton going on now. So tell us what you and Monica are doing with this Get Your Book Selling Direct. Where can people find you? Where can they find the Kickstarter? Sure. So this has happened in the past week. So I don't think I, I had a chance to fill you in on it. But the bo- direct sales, it ends up being a big concept. And we actually went from one book to two books. And so it's now a two-part book. One is on sales funnels and flywheels, and one's on psychological triggers. It's volume one and volume two. It's now called Direct Sales Mastery, and you can find it at writermba.com forward slash DSA. It's a combination of basically everything we've taught for the past combined 25 years, along with a lot of stuff from our author ecosystem. So if you haven't taken our author ecosystem quiz, if you're like, how do I even get started on this? We created a quiz at authorecosystem.com to help you figure out where you are going in your direct sales journey and your sales and marketing journey. And then we do have a conference called the Future of Publishing Mastermind, which you can uh, find on the Kickstarter. And really what we wanted to do was take all of the scholarship we'd basically written over the span of our careers and condense it down into something that makes sense as a single narrative. And that's been the hardest thing about direct sales is I don't think anyone has created a singular narrative of what the scope of the problem is. A lot of people talk about web stores and Shopify. Some people talk about Kickstarter. People talk about subscriptions, but no one really talks about how these things interconnect and play together. And so it's going to be two volumes and we really want it to be, like I said, a single thoughtful narrative on how to take this stuff and build an ecosystem around it that is additive to your catalog sales. So if you are already doing really well on catalog sales, this will show you how to open up your direct sales in a way that 
doesn't just focus on Shopify, doesn't just focus on Patreon, but focuses on how you can build all of these verticals successfully into your business and make them all work together. Because singularly, it is a lot of work. But once you get one set up, it really does all funnel into and trickle into the other stuff. So I hope if you have any interest in marketing, sales, or direct sales, I hope you'll check it out at writermba.com forward slash DSA or just go to Kickstarter and type in direct sales mastery for authors. Fantastic. And you also have a podcast. Tell people where they can find that too. Absolutely. It's called Kickstart Your Book Sales. It's on all uh, aggregators. And it's got, I think, close to 100 episodes now. And some of them are very meaty big boys, like two, two and a half hour from some of our webinars. And uh, we want it to be a really powerful repository of how to build direct sales into your business. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Russell. That was great. Thank you for having me. So I hope you found the interview with Russell interesting and that it's given you some ideas around your own author business, wherever you are on the journey. So I will be backing that Kickstarter as soon as it launches. Russell and Monica have so much experience with direct sales of all kinds. And as I've mentioned, this will be my business focus in 2024. More to come on that in my epic 15 year pivot uh, solo episode, which will be going out uh, in December. More to come on that. So in the meantime, check out their campaign, writermba.com forward slash DSA. So next week, I will tell you some of my highlights from 20 Books Vegas, and I will be talking about starting a second career as an author and networking tips with Patrick O'Donnell. Patrick is a master networker, uh, which is progressing his career so much faster than it would be otherwise. And I know it's difficult for those of us who are introverts, um, but we can learn something from extroverts like Patrick. (laughs) So I really appreciate his positive attitude of service first and I know you're going to find that useful. So in the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.